Well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3 this morning. You are welcome to open up your Bibles there. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. And, and really the focus of, our, of this morning's message is how it is that we become a people who can prepare the way of the Lord. What does it mean for us to be a people, particularly in this Advent season, who are preparing the way of the the Lord in the world today? But let's read together Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. The gospel reads this way. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them these generous greetings, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? How would you love if you just got greeted at church this way? John, not making friends. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, I tell you. That out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Not your typical sort of Advent text that you think of at least, of this sort of picture of baby Jesus in a manger with hay, with a donkey overlooking him, while Mary and Joseph are pleased with what they have done, this very different kind of text, and we're going to get into it this morning. I'm not sure if you've thought ever long or hard about it, or if you've ever considered why the books of the Bible are ordered the way that they're ordered. That is, why do we get Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? I don't know if I could do all of them. I'm just, I probably could, but I don't know if I could. But, but why are they ordered in that way? You see, they're not ordered chronologically in the story that the scriptures tell. Is that if you read the Bible just straight through from Genesis to the end, you would find yourselves kind of like, well, why is Ezekiel over here after Ezra and Nehemiah? Because they should technically be over here. It's like kind of mixed up. But it's also not ordered in the sort of chronology of when they were written. Like here, this book was written first, and this book was written second, so we're going to place them in this order. But why are the books of the Bible ordered that the way that they are? 
You see, ordering the Bible wasn't really a big issue for most of human history, right? Because back in the day, in ancient times, you didn't have one giant book that contained all of the scriptures. Each book, typically, within Jewish culture, was written on its own scroll. And so you had a scroll of Genesis, and a scroll of Exodus, and a scroll of Leviticus. And there wasn't sort of one compiled volume of the scriptures, But much later, right, in history and in the people of God, the Bible gets compiled into a single volume. And in that single volume, we have these two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And why, is the question, do we order the books the way that we do? And what bridges the Old Testament with the New Testament? These are the types of things that I think about when I'm laying in bed. But the person who's sort of the focus of this morning's passage, John the Baptist, is the one who sort of ties together these two sections of scripture. He serves sort of as a bridge from the Old Testament into the New Testament. He makes sense of why the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi and why the New Testament begins with the Gospels. A year or so ago, I made a striking confession to a group of students in the youth group that I was leading that changed their opinion of me sort of forever is I, I hadn't, I confess to them, seen any of the Star Wars movies and their jaws just hit the floor and they couldn't believe it. Certainly all old people have seen Star Wars, they thought, right, as they had seen them. But I reasoned with them, part of the reason why I couldn't get on the sort of Star Wars hype that has sort of re-emerged over the past decade or so is because I didn't know the backstory. I, I hadn't seen any of the previous movies. And so I wouldn't be able to make sense of the characters and the relationships or the story. All I knew is that there was a bad guy and there's some good guys and there's just good and evil, right? And then good wins in the end. And in fact, Star Wars is sort of told in a way that mirrors our scriptures in some way. The, the story isn't told to us throughout time in a chronology chronology that makes sense of things you kind of start with episode four is that right and then you do five six and then they go one two three and then it's like prequels and I don't even know how any of that goes but I made this confession to our students and they they said that we have to as a youth group have a Star Wars marathon event in our youth ministry to educate me on popular culture and so we sat for two weekends oh my goodness watching the Star Wars films in chronological order of the story And it makes sense of why, and I love Star Wars now, by the way. It's a great, I I get all the hype now. Anyways, okay, sorry. Neither here nor there. But to make sense of why Jesus' ministry begins with a story about this guy shouting in the wilderness, dressed in camel hair, with a leather belt, strange outfit choice, eating locusts and honey, we need a bit of sort of biblical marathon of sorts to make sense of it all. See, this is not exactly how I would have launched my ministry if I was Jesus. Like, hey, you're going to go out into the mountains over there and just shout, Aaron's coming to preach at the Powerhouse Church. That would be weird, right, if I had somebody dress in camel hair and do that. It's an odd thing. So what's going on here? What's the backstory that allows us to make sense of what's happening in Matthew's gospel? You see, John's attire here and the description of it is similar to that of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. 
Elijah was a tremendously important prophet within the history of God's people. And one of the most notable things, though, about Elijah is that the scriptures go out of their way to inform us that Elijah did not die. In 2 Kings 2.11, we have this record that reads that Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind, and that was the end of Elijah's life. He didn't die, but he was sort of sucked up into heaven in this whirlwind. I don't know exactly how that happened physically, but this is what the scriptures testify to us. And this is a tremendously important detail to know about Elijah's life and why he becomes so important for our reading this morning. Let's jump to the last book of the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament, I know you're all familiar with it, is a book called Malachi. It was named after after the prophet Malachi. And it picks up the story of the Jewish people after they had returned from exile in Babylon. Because of God, or God's people, because of their lack of faithfulness to God, are conquered by the Babylonians. This is one of the primary stories that's told in the Old Testament. And this time period is known as the Babylonian exile. And after nearly a century, God has frees his people from the captivity, their captivity in Babylon and sends them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple, which they do. And the expectation at this point in the story of the scriptures is that upon rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, upon rebuilding the temple, things would go swimmingly. God would send his Messiah into the world, and the Messiah would establish God's kingdom in Jerusalem. But those who rebuilt the city and the temple proved to be just as unfaithful and unjust as those who were sent into captivity. And the city of God, Jerusalem is sort of marked by injustice and poverty and suffering and brokenness. And all those who are suffering wonder why God hasn't fully restored the hearts of his people after the exile. Like, God, you sent us into exile. You had us be conquered by this other people group so that we would learn our lesson, so that you can come and do a new thing. And we started that project. We've come back to Jerusalem. We've rebuilt the temple. But why are people still corrupt? Why is there sin still pervading our people? Why have you not restored our hearts? And why have you not established your kingdom? This is the content of the book of Malachi. Why hasn't God done these things? And so in the book of Malachi, God says to the people, he will come in judgment of the people a day, on a day known as the day of the Lord. And on that day, God says, he will refine his people like purifying fire with metal. And in the final verse of Malachi, God says this, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. That is, Elijah has become this figure within the scriptural narrative who was anticipated to return, who is going to be a forerunner of sorts before God's Messiah would come and establish God's kingdom. And Malachi anticipates a day when God will send a new Elijah, that God will send a new prophet into the world, pronouncing that he is going to restore his people and establish his kingdom. And the gospel's description of John dressed like Elijah 
and calling people to repentance is their way of illuminating as obviously as they possibly can that God's Messiah is coming, that the kingdom of God is going to break into the world and God is going to restore his people. And this becomes the great messianic hope or the great hope of God's people, that the Messiah would come, restore the hearts of his people and establish his kingdom. And Matthew here in our text says, hey, that guy is coming because the Elijah camel-like weirdo is out in the wilderness shouting that he is arriving. The people longed for the kingdom of God to be established. And we see, actually, in Isaiah, why God's people long so deeply for God's kingdom to be established. In anticipation of the Messiah and God's kingdom, Isaiah writes these words, excuse the lengthy passage, but it is so, so good. Isaiah writes, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, this sounds like a Christmas passage, right? He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. And here's this vision or picture of the kingdom of God. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, hopefully not my son, but, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. This depiction of God's kingdom in Isaiah stands in stark contrast to the world in which we live. You see, Isaiah casts this vision for the world where the poor are cared for and the needy are given justice. There's this vision where hostility is displaced with peace. See, Isaiah depicts the wolf and the lamb living together, the leopard and the goat existing in harmony, a world where the lion shares a meal with the ox instead of making the ox his meal. And the summary of this world is described as a place where no one harms or destroys. Can you imagine living in such a world where those who seem like natural enemies somehow find friendship and relationship and peace? The early 19th century Quaker, Edward Hicks, created the famous painting titled the Peaceable Kingdom, which I showed somebody this morning, and they said, it is awful. <laughs> They're like, this is a horrible painting. Did you do that? No, I did not paint this. I wish that I had painted it. But the painting is an interpretation of Isaiah's vision of the kingdom of God. In it, we find a lamb at the feet of a wolf 
and a small child petting a cheetah. That's my favorite image in the picture, by the way. But Hicks painted at least 60 versions of the peaceable kingdom. And most art historians believe there were likely more than 60 that he painted, one of which is hung in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. But off to the left-hand corner of most versions of this painting, The Peaceable Kingdom, Hicks illustrates the contemporary scene of what God's kingdom would look like in our world or in his world in the early uh, 19th century. Most art historians believe that the background image is of uh, fellow Quaker William Penn, if you're familiar with him, making peace with a group of Native Americans. The kingdom that the Messiah came to establish was one that was envisioned by Isaiah. But the kingdom of God, though, wasn't merely to be desired. Like, man, I hope that we can aspire to living in this kind of world. But it was meant to take root in the lives of communities and cities and nations in the world. And so we have in this painting, in the foreground, the proclamation of this vision that Isaiah gives to us. And in the background, you have the people of God trying their darndest to embody this peaceable kingdom of God that they anticipated in the world. And the pronouncement of our gospel this morning is that the kingdom is breaking into the world. This peaceable kingdom is breaking into the world through the person of Jesus. And like John, we too are to be directing people's attention to the one who is establishing this peaceable kingdom in the world, Jesus Christ. You see, John's entire life and ministry is built around preaching Jesus and the peaceable kingdom, pointing to the Messiah, pointing to Jesus of Nazareth as the one who will restore people's hearts and will restore our world. And this continues to be the work that the church ought to be doing today is that we preach Jesus. In John's preaching, he proclaims that people ought to repent Repentance in John's day doesn't ha- didn't have this sort of negative connotation in that it sort of does in our world today. When we hear that idea of repentance, we hear like, shame on you, you're bad, you're wrong, whatever it is. But to repent biblically means to change direction, to move in a different direction. More specifically, to be people who invite the world to repent is to invite them to follow and move in the direction of Jesus. There is in our world a longing to identify a savior and a messiah. In our particular culture, that sometimes manifests itself in identifying the politician, the president, the one who will come and save our nation, who will keep us from harming and destroying our country and one another and the world. And we go through this searching process every four years in our country. Who's the one who's going to save us? Who's the right person who's going to save this country? Who will be the one to rescue us from whatever our current plight is in the world? And do you know who is the only one who can truly save the world? It is Jesus. He is our Lord. And he is our king. He is our hope to establish the peaceable kingdom of God in the world. But the church ought to be preaching and pointing people to Jesus, to repent and move in the direction of Jesus. This is the church's, one of the church's vocations is to be in the world like John in the wilderness, directing people to the one who can actually save, and that is Jesus. It sometimes sounds a little cheap 
right? To simply tell people to preach Jesus, point people to Jesus. What's the problem with the world? Well, you gotta follow Jesus, right? Like this sounds so cliche. It sounds overly simplistic. And we would do well to be reminded that our preaching of Jesus is made substantive when our lives reflect his kingdom. That is that God's people ought to be a living picture of God's kingdom in the world. Like Edward Hicks's painting, if our preaching is the foreground of our message, our lives ought to be lived in the background, living what it is that we preach, living into the kingdom of God. You see, at the end of this morning's passage, John says that he baptizes with water, but the one who is more powerful than him will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. If you follow Jesus, if you profess Jesus as your savior, you have a divine resource at your disposal that empowers you for every good work that God has planned for you. Paul writes in Philippians 2, it is God, it is the Holy Spirit who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. That is the Holy Spirit equips and empowers the people of God to live the peaceable kingdom, to live lives that are concerned and care for the poor, to be a community that look like a bunch of wolves and lambs living together. What an odd group of people the church usually is made up of, not ours, but other churches. And it's only in our embodying God's peaceable kingdom that our preaching of Jesus has substance. There's a well-known story about a woman named Cory Tenboon. For those who are unfamiliar with her, she depicts this story when she met her greatest enemy. Cory was a Dutch watchmaker during the 1940s. And during World War II, she and her family housed and protected many Jews in their home. And after a couple of years, they were outed by an informant and imprisoned in a concentration camp in Germany where her sister ultimately would die. Corey, however, was miraculously released from the camp because of some sort of paperwork or clerical error. But she records much of her life in a book that's titled The Hiding Place. And she recounts a particular story when she had returned to Germany after the war to speak at a church about forgiveness. And she wrote and she writes in her book, it was the truth that they, the German people, needed to hear that forgiveness was possible. And after her talk, she writes that the German people don't stick around and shake hands with the speaker. They just kind of get up quietly and they leave and you don't know if you did great or if you did horribly. But after this particular talk in this church, while the crowd was exiting, she noticed a man making his way to her. Immediately, she recognized him as a soldier from the concentration camp where her sister had died. When he made it up to Corey, he made this profession and confession to her. You made mention, he said, of a concentration camp in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Will you forgive me? Corey writes these words recounting that moment. She says, I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. 
Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started and my shoulder raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. With all my heart, I forgive you. The wolf and the lamb, the calf and the lion, the cow and the bear, the peaceable kingdom of God breaking into the world within the body of Christ. This is the call that we have as people who follow Jesus is to live into the reality of God's kingdom in the world where reconciliation is possible, where peace is made possible because of the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. When we preach like John and live by the power of the Holy Spirit, the peaceable kingdom of God, we become those who prepare the way of the Lord in the world. The invitation every Advent season, church, the start, Advent is the start of the Christian year, is an invitation to spend our year, to spend the upcoming year in preparing the way of the Lord and our witness and in our lives in the world. And the call to us this morning is not merely to understand the story the scriptures are telling, but to step into and live that story, to live as those who are preparing the way of the Lord in our city. And the question that we have to grapple with every Advent is where might God be calling you to prepare for his coming into the world? How might you be be pulled into greater care for the poor in our city? Who might you need to forgive and be reconciled to? How is it that our church can more and more reflect the peaceable kingdom of God? And as you respond to God's call in faith, may you be living a picture of his peaceable kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you make new things out of broken things. We are grateful that you restore the hearts of your people. And we are grateful, God, that you invite us into bearing witness to Jesus in our community and in the world. We ask, God, that you would fill us more and more with your Holy Spirit, that somehow equipped by his grace, by his power, our community and our church might reflect what it looks like to be wolves and lambs in community together. What it looks like to give justice and care for the poor that are in our midst. And in so doing, God, we long to give you glory. We submit ourselves to these purposes and to your kingdom this day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Church, as you go from the this place. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Go in his peace. God bless.